Thomas James Cobden Sanderson, commissioned a typeface in 1899. In 1900, with his partner Emery Walker, he founded the Dove's Press in Hammersmith, named for a nearby pub, and together they began printing what have been described by design historians as some of the finest books ever produced in England. This typeface, known as Dove's Roman, the Dove's Press font of type, or simply Dove's Type, radically broke with contemporary typographic norms in ways which came to be hugely influential in the years after. But 17 years later, on a cold night in February, this typeface and all of its component parts had been thrown off a bridge into the Thames, where it lay undisturbed for almost a hundred years. I'm James Thompson. This is Subterraneans. of the British Industrial Revolution of the 1800s, a small group of artists founded what came to be known as the Arts and Crafts Movement. Distressed by what they saw as the bleak mechanisation of European aesthetics, they called for a return to traditional artistic forms which had largely been abandoned at the time. This movement, like any which becomes sufficiently large and influential, is hard to pin down to a particular aesthetic or set of practices, But broadly speaking, they argued for greater emphasis and respect to be paid to the decorative arts and to the role of design in society and everyday life. One of the leading figures in this movement, William Morris, is now probably most famous for his textile designs. They are elaborate, colourful, floral works, which call attention to themselves with their intricacy and their references to classical nature drawings. Morris's designs became immensely fashionable after he began distributing them through his firm Morris, Marshall, Faulkner and Company in 1861. His work, and the philosophy of the arts and crafts movement more broadly, called for a fusion of the practical and the beautiful in all household objects. Probably his most famous quote is, Have nothing in your houses that you do not know to be useful, or believe to be beautiful. Looking at some of the trash that's accumulated on my desk, I could probably use a bit of help in that department. You can clearly see the influence of the arts and crafts philosophy in later modernist art movements, most obviously with the Bauhaus in Germany. In fact, most of what I've just described will be so familiar to design students that it probably sounds like basic common sense. It is the nature of truly great ideas that Over time, they cease to seem so radical, and instead seem simply to be an expression of a universal truth. It's just that nobody had said it yet. If you read Marx's Capital these days, it honestly feels like he's stating the bleeding obvious for most of the book, because he's only really describing how capitalism functions. He was just the first to say it. It follows, then, that many of the most prominent proponents of the arts and crafts movement were also avowed socialists, and there was a clear social critique embedded in their objections to industrialization. 
They're not unlike the Luddites in that way, which I've spoken about previously. It wasn't just an aversion to machines as a matter of principle, but rather an aversion to the working conditions required for mass production, and the ways in which this widened social divides. Industrial machinery would be operated by the working poor for terrible wages, and would invariably be set to churn out low-quality products in high volume for the market, to sell directly back to those same working poor. Meanwhile, the wealthy would be purchasing goods likely made by those same machines, and to those same poor standards, but in smaller quantities and for commensurately higher prices. Good design was secondary to volume and profit margin. In 1883's Art Under Plutocracy, William Morris said, So long as the system of competition in the production and exchange of the means of life goes on, the degradation of the arts will go on. And if that system is to last forever, then art is doomed and will surely die. That is to say, civilization will die. Putting it even more plainly in 1884's Art and Socialism, he said, Nothing should be made by man's labour which is not worth making, or which must be made by labour degrading to the makers. The Arts and Crafts movement, broadly, was a call for the return of the community artist, who worked locally as a craftsman, producing items to a high personal standard with a sense of care and dignity. It's a slightly old-fashioned type of socialism, if I'm being completely honest, with a sort of pastoral bent to it that you find in a measure of early left thought. A lot of Marxist imagery at the time saw the fall of capitalism as a return to a pre-industrial connection to the land, a yearning for the village and the countryside, in opposition to the dirty, hyper-capitalist city. None of this is present in Marx's writing necessarily, but it's how it was often interpreted by contemporary thinkers. Nowadays, of course, it's clear that the soul-sickness of capitalism pays no mind to the rural-urban divide. That sort of nostalgic longing for the pre-industrial has completely fractured. And the equivalent fantasy for leftists who work in that aspirational mode lies in ideas like fully automated luxury communism, a mid-2010s fad based on the idea that we could harness modern productivity gains while shedding the exploitation required to produce them. It's really a fantasy of keeping the positives that capitalism has produced for a tiny sector of mostly white, mostly wealthy people in the global north without massive colonial violence against the global south. Climate disaster has mostly put pay to that sort of thinking these days, as we come to acknowledge that actually, maybe Europe and America should lower our living standards a little, because if we don't, the world will literally end. It remains to see if that's going to stick. I've come a long way from talking about typography. Sorry. Let me bring us back in. Thomas James Cobden Sanderson was a part of the arts and crafts movement, but his typeface broke with William Morris's work quite markedly. It's got a simple, unadorned quality in comparison to the classically inspired fonts used by William Morris. It has been described as an example of a transparent font, in the sense that it lacks ornamentation, at least by present-day standards. Certain aspects of it, such as the ligatures which connect the C and T in some contexts, seem archaic to modernise, but it's unmistakably modern in its sensibilities. 
Drawing from his experience creating a bold, ornate type based on a 15th century Venetian font for William Morris's printing, Cobden Sanderson instructed employee Percy Tiffin to copy from the same font, but instead to focus on refining the letter forms down to a clean, elegant simplicity. The text they were drawing from, according to Cobden Sanderson, had been rendered with imperfect press work and over-inking, meaning previous adaptations tended towards the heavy and the ornate. His vision was one of clarity, not ornamentation. These initial drawings by Tiffin were then obsessively polished by master punch cutter Edward Prince, who is responsible for the bewitchingly delicate geometry of the final typeface. It's hard not to find some romance in this precise craftsmanship, working at a tiny scale to distill the curves and symmetries of each letter into their purest, most powerful configuration. Another short aside, the idea of a transparent font mentioned earlier comes from a 1932 essay by Beatrice Ward entitled The Crystal Goblet, or Printing Should Be Invisible, in which he colourfully argues that Given the choice between a solid gold goblet and a crystal clear glass for pouring wine into, a true connoisseur would always choose the clear glass, since it better highlights the colours, textures and innate characteristics of the wine itself. Similarly, she argues, good typography should be invisible, allowing you to scan the text fluently with as little thought as possible put into the fact that you are actively reading a book. The Defont should accentuate the intrinsic qualities of the text, without necessarily being visible in itself. This is a not uncontroversial opinion, especially given she was working alongside artists whose work was all about drawing attention to the limits and contradictions of their respective mediums, but it's an interesting view nonetheless. Dove's type has an intensely transparent effect. In fact, Part of why it became so sought after is that it was said to accentuate the text it was printed in to an awe-inspiring degree. The Dove's Press Bible, a version of the King James translation printed at the press between 1903 and 1905, is avidly sought by collectors to this day, due in no small part to the truly stunning typesetting and use of accent characters to draw the eye through the text. That's not the only reason, though. Obviously, Bible collectors do tend to be religious, they're not exclusively, but it's more common. But there have long been rumours that an encounter with a genuine edition of the Dove's Press Bible leads to a temporary spell of increased religiosity. It's been noted that churches supplied with these Bibles at the time saw their attendance double or even triple in the months after they were purchased. But that's far from the most extreme example. A collector from Frankfurt who paid a significant sum for a first edition in 2006 was struck so profoundly by this that, two weeks later, he was found street preaching and declaring himself the progenitor of a new Christian revival, a sort of locally contained Jerusalem syndrome that fortunately wore off by the end of the month. It doesn't necessarily affect everyone who encounters it, and it seems to be bound to the physical prints themselves. You can't just go online and look at a JPEG for the same effect, even though I recommend that you do, just to appreciate the craftsmanship. But it's definitely noticeable. How did this typeface, widely praised and lauded as an exemplar in its time, 
wind up at the bottom of the Thames. Most scholars of this period will tell you that it's down to a dispute between Thomas Cobden Sanderson and his former business partner, Emery Walker. Aware that he was dying and that the terms of the 1909 settlement between himself and Walker dictated that the press would pass over to him after his death, Cobden Sanderson dumped the type into the Thames by the Hammersmith Bridge in 1917. The two men had parted ways acrimoniously in 1906, and Cobden Anderson reacted extremely normally, cursing Walker's name and declaring that he'd rather his masterpiece be bequeathed to the Thames than fall into that bastard's hands, where it would no doubt be used to churn out low-quality books, besmirching the good reputation of the Dove's press. However, the diaries of a worker at the press were recently uncovered revealing previously unknown details about the period when this dispute began to ferment. Madeline Stoker would have been 15 at the time the first Dove's Press Bibles rolled off the line. She lived in a slum tenement with her five siblings near the old Hammersmith oil mills, and worked at the press as, essentially, a cleaner and errand girl for the men in charge. Despite living in crushing poverty, she benefited from a nearby social program and learned to read and write, which is part of what got her the job in the first place. Cobden Sanderson was impressed with her moxie and offered her what was a relatively comfortable position, all things considered. Walker, however, was decidedly less entertained by her presence in the office. Reading from an early diary entry by Stoker, 24th of February, 1904, C.S. Cobden Sanderson, Dispatched me to fetch lunch for him and W, Walker. I ran as quickly as I could, but the shop was crowded. When I got back into the office 20 minutes later, W flew into a rage with me. Called me a stupid girl and threw his sandwich across the room. I hid in the cleaning cupboard and wept for an hour. Why does he hate me so terribly much? This isn't an uncommon theme, unfortunately. Walker would occasionally fly off the handle at Stoker, attempting to fire her, and Cobden Sanderson would have to step in to stop him. Madeline was a hard worker, but clearly struggled with the pressure, as would anyone, given the volatility of it all. In general, this jibes with the historical record. Walker was generally considered temperamental and fiery, an avowed socialist who nonetheless was prone to fits of rage, whereas Cobden Sanderson was introverted and obsessive to the point of self-neglect, often staying awake for days to perfect a print run before distribution. These diaries do, however, paint an interesting picture of the relationship between the two men. It's clear that Walker, despite his short temper, immensely respected Cobden Sanderson, and would dote on him when he thought they were alone. Consider the following entry. 13th June, 1904. Was sent home early by W, but decided to stay to clean the press, as we have a busy week ahead. Came upon a queer thing when I glanced into the office window at 8.30. CS was reading a manuscript on the sofa, and had fallen asleep with his head in W's lap, and W was stroking his hair while he rested. A very sweet scene. I snuck away without them noticing my presence. Perhaps Mr. Walker has a softer side after all. Clearly, at some point, the two men were close. 
which makes the bitterness of their split all the more upsetting. It was soon after this that Stoker began experimenting with the press itself. She was fascinated with the way it moved, noting colourfully that it clicked and lilted like an immense steam train, carrying books as its passengers. She was also, interestingly, one of the first to notice the compulsive effect of its type, writing the following entry. 20th September 1904 The Dove's Bible has been causing quite a stir at work. Those who read it seem taken with a peculiar religious fervour, and they have had to turn down excess orders as we are unable to meet demand. A parishioner from St. Ives travelled all the way up to London to witness the printing press doing its careful work, declaring the Bible a gift from the Almighty himself. There has been a similar effect with books of poetry produced by C.S. Something about this press causes people to become quite taken with the words it prints. Stoker would stay at the factory late into the night, avoiding a return to her dingy flat just down the river, studying how to set type and run the machines by herself. It took a few months, but shortly after her 17th birthday, she printed her first work, a letter to Walker and Cobden Sanderson, thanking them for the opportunity to work at the press. Her diary entry for the date she handed it to them. 9th March, 1905. I've passed a letter of thanks to W and CS for their help in providing me this position. Mr. Walker accepted the letter and seemed rather bowled over by my words. He has been noticeably kinder and more affectionate towards me all day. CS remains stoic but thanked me in his usual gruff style. I consider this quite the success. I will attempt further experiments shortly. She quickly became emboldened, and just a few weeks later, the following entry appears. 23rd March 1905. Printed a note highlighting my good work and asking for a promotion to typesetter and left it on W's desk. Quite the gamble, but paid off expediently. Mr. Walker has been lobbying Mr. Cobden Sanderson all day to promote me, although the latter seems quite unmoved. It seems the press does not affect him quite so keenly, and he is resistant to my advancement. CS has been very critical of my work recently, and I fear he's becoming jealous of W's affections towards me. Nonetheless, hoping to hear positive news tomorrow. This news never came. The next day's entry is scribbled at speed and blotted with what we can assume are tears. 24th of March 1905. Terrible day. W and CS fought loudly for hours. Everyone heard CS accuse W of having an affair with me. It's not true. Mr. Walker stormed out and vowed never to return. C.S. wept in the office until everyone went home. What have I done? Stoker tore out the entries for the next few days, unfortunately, so we're missing the full fallout of this event. The final 
and most pertinent entry appears a week and a half later. 3rd April 1905. It is done. The note was delivered to CS anonymously. You should now be aware of the corrosive effect that this blasted typeface can have on people. Although he doesn't seem affected by it, I pray that the breakdown of this relationship with Mr. Walker is enough to convince him of what needs to be done. I feel terrible. But should this power fall into the wrong hands? Well, it has already caused sufficient harm, I feel. May God forgive me for what I've done. Shortly after this entry, the business partnership between Emery Walker and Thomas Cobden Sanderson was dissolved for good. Within ten years, the Dove's Press was shuttered, and Thomas had begun the process of destroying the font completely. Not out of spite, I would contest, but out of fear. The Dove's type was subject to greatly renewed interest in 2014, when designer Robert Green, in conjunction with the Port of London Authority's diving team, miraculously recovered 151 of the pieces Cobden Sanderson threw off the bridge that fateful night. Green's version of the font is available to purchase online, although there haven't been any reports of a similar compulsive effect yet. That said, the immaculate geometry of the original lettering seems to carry with it a strange power. Break-in attempts have been reported at every location it's been stored, usually by amateurish, confused people, who are quickly caught and unable to explain their actions when confronted. Planned exhibitions have to be closely guarded to prevent visitors from trying to get into the display case. Demonstrations of the font in action have been cancelled due to the frenzied reaction of the audience. Something about the Dove's type wants to be free. Perhaps the Thames was protecting us from it, those hundred years underwater. I'm scared, though, that it could fall into the wrong hands, and that the dream of a truly transparent type, that perfect crystal glass that connects the human soul direct to the written word, is the dream not of a tool, but of a weapon. episode of Subterraneans, I listen to the tapes that Flick sent me. I listen to the tapes that Flick sent me. We are listening to the tapes that Flick sent me. I've been James Thompson. You can reach me at Subtopod on Twitter or by email through subtopod at gmail.com. If you're enjoying this series, please subscribe and rate on the Apple Podcasts app. You can also subscribe on Patreon where you can get access to transcripts, bonus episodes, behind-the-scenes info from £5 a month. 
That's patreon.com forward slash subtopod. Special thanks to my £10 and above subscribers, Hiram, Alex, and Isaac. I'm going to make it through this year if it kills me. Thanks for listening.